Okay, pray with me, would you please? Father God in heaven, I want to thank you for the privilege of being able to take this day and to seek your face and to know you're good and to know you love us and that you want us. And I pray today, God, that your word would burst open and come alive. And God, that what we need to hear tonight, we would get, we would understand, we would, we would, it would captivate us, God. And that you would take, Lord, our very wills and, and knit them to yours, God. That this would be more than just the word tickling our brains, but rather, God, penetrating our hearts and transforming us and making us more into you. So, Lord, that's what we want. Is we want to become more like you, just as we sung. So, Lord, please take this time, and may we get it, Lord, whether we have all kinds of experience and reference in the Scripture or whether we don't, whether we are fresh and new to all of this. God, please, tonight, may we really get you. So commit this time to you, and just pray, Lord, that you would be blessed by every minute of it. Saturate us in your word now, we pray. And Lord, may our eyes and our hearts and our minds be open to what it is you want to say. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So say tonight is what I need. Please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the Bible. Search the scriptures. And let the Bible have the final say. Uh, because clearly everything should be tested by scripture. And that's one of the reasons we make sure we go straight through scripture. So that you know we're not making it up. We are in 1 Samuel 18, and that puts us at roughly about somewhere between 1,000 and 1,100 B.C. That's 3,000 years ago. And we're looking at the situation now where we're beginning to see introduced one of the most pinnacle, iconic characters in all of the Bible. We know him as King David. Although we really won't be in the public eye King David, to be honest, until 2 Samuel. What we have in between that time we saw... Uh, just in the last week, uh, David then, as we made the mock-up of, of those of you who were here, for of Goliath, and, and there he was, his head was actually above the track line of these lights, and then we compared him to the average height of the David, which would be roughly Hugo, and, and that was rather rather scary to actually compare the two. And, and, and the whole point of it was is that what we got to see was this young lad who steps up and emerges out of obscurity that God anoints because of two very simple statements he makes because the first known, visible, physical, tangible king of Israel, a man named Saul, really, though he had a fantastic calling, he had no consecration. And that's where it starts. Prior to David was a king named Saul. Saul was a man called to be king because the people demanded a king. And after a great deal of things were to come to confirm this calling, and I'm summing it up for the sake of time, Ultimately, he had one command, and that was to go to the place called Gilgal and offer sacrifices, a burnt offering, and the idea of that is total surrender, because everything is consumed. And then a peace offering, which then is that now that you're right with God, you want to celebrate that with everyone else. And what we find is Saul doesn't seem to have a problem with the public sacrifice, but he has a real problem with the private one. He never makes it there. That place where he was supposed to do that was the place that when Israel crossed over the Jordan into the Promised Land, that generation was circumcised as a renewing of their covenant with God before they were to take on those that were going to stand against them in the land. But Saul doesn't do that. In the place of circumcision, Saul does not go. 
And as a result of that, what we start to see is this unconsecrated heart start to manifest. Now listen, we all can fake it. We all can learn how, when you come into an environment like this, and you kind of learn what makes me cool, what makes me fit in, what words do I have to use, what expressions do I have to make, those kind of things. And you learn how to kind of play the role, but that doesn't mean your heart's there. And so you kind of learn how to play that kind of, you know, you've learned how to really put on the show. But God, we read, no man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart, the nabal, the inside. And that's important because what that means is we can really fool each other. We can genuinely fool each other because we're looking at the outside. But you're never going to fool God. And inevitably, an unconsecrated heart will manifest. Because you can't have a heart that's not into it without it sooner or later making its way to the surface. And you know that. You've had friends that you've gone on joint ventures with that really weren't into it, and maybe they pretended at first, but when the, the issues got hard, there was no way they were going to do anything about it. They were quick to bail, and that was definitely this guy's situation. So from chapters 13 through 15, we see that the manifestations of Saul's unsacrificed, uncommitted heart. He lets fear take him over, and he does what only the priest can do, he becomes lethargic to the battle, and then he takes quick victory when somebody else steps in, in that case, his son. And then he took his own word quite seriously, but not God's word. And he has this issue where he thinks no matter whatever he says must be true and obey to the letter, to the dot. But God's word, well, that can be kind of bent as long as it somehow contradicts his. And then in the last, in chapter 15, what we see is Saul then giving God all of the rotten things. He destroyed all the rotten things and said, sure, God, we'll get rid of all that. But the best things they said they kept. And ultimately he would say that people took them and they were going to give them to him. But then he included a king so that he could make a statue, a monument for himself. And that would become a very big issue. As a result of that, God makes these two statements. In First Samuel, and if you're there, go to chapter 13 for a moment. That should be relatively simple if you have your Bible. And if not, I'm going to read it to you, and you can get the MP3 online within the next couple of weeks so you can compare. In 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, God says in judgment to Saul, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. Now what God says is, you know, Saul, buddy, this is a loose paraphrase. I mean, I was looking for a guy that really, what he really wanted was my heart. But that's not you. It's really not what you're after, is it? And understand, when your heart's not set apart to God, you can want all of God's things, but you're not going to want his heart. And you know, if you've ever kind of gone out with somebody that really, when you come to the conclusion sooner or later, they just weren't into you as much as you thought they should be, and one day you just kind of wake up and realize, wow, I'm, I'm really lying to myself. The truth be told, this person's just not into it. Well, then you understand where God's standing with this. He says, what I'm really looking for is someone that what they want isn't my blessings, isn't all my stuff, but my heart. And I actually found someone. That's the amazing part. But Saul's sad to say it's not you. But as a result of that, because you've not kept what I told you, you were the last king in your family. That's what he says. You've now lost your lineage as king. 
In chapter 15, once he spares Agag and the best of the things, in chapter 15, verse 28, God says, Now in his second judgment, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today. And he's given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Oh, man. Who would ever want to hear God say, I found somebody better than you? Well, what made him better? Well, we go back to the first statement. What made him better was what he was after. What made him better was he was after God's heart and saw it was love. So then David starts to emerge. By the way, more than likely roughly, roughly 15 years old. And it's one thing when God finds a guy better than you. It's another thing when God finds a 15-year-old kid that's better than you. But you don't have to, do, to read long in the Psalms to realize why. Of the 150 Psalms, 71 of them are clearly attributed to David. And of those Psalms, by the way, at least 80% of them are written when David was in great duress, running for his life. A major portion of his life we're going to find starting today. And what I love about David is as David's about to die, he doesn't call himself the greatest king of Israel, though there were two, so it was an easy comparison. He doesn't call himself the giant slayer. He calls himself the sweet psalmist of Israel. As David, even in his deathbed, would look at himself. He doesn't look at himself as all the things that God has given him other than this. He was a, he was a kid that followed sheep that was amazed by God that played a song. That was it. I love that about the guy. David, as we were aware of last week, he took on the one guy that nobody else in Israel would take on. Now, I remind you, Saul was a head and shoulders taller than everyone else. But Saul had, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> what Saul had over every, every Israelite was that he was taller. He was roughly, if you will, a foot and a half or a half a meter taller than the, every other person, which really must have looked good until Goliath steps onto the scene and you realize even your very best things will not work in the kingdom of God, because ultimately only God can do the work that God can do. So with all of that in mind, it ended after David had slain Goliath with Saul asking, who in the world is this kid? David would answer, I'm the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now, as we saw an unconsecrated heart manifest in the last five chapters, now we start to see a consecrated heart manifest here. And I want to warn you, if your heart really belongs to the Lord, that doesn't mean everyone's going to like that. As a matter of fact, you're probably where most people aren't. I often say, people don't seem to have a problem with you becoming a Christian until you become a real one. And that makes me have a problem. But now we start to see what happens. And look at it with me now in chapter 18, verse 1. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, that's David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to the sword and his bow and his belt. Now some people, and by the way, it makes clear in the New Testament, to the, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled, nothing is pure. You ever have the kind of person, no matter what you see, they turn it into an innuendo? It doesn't matter what it is. I'm going to get an ice cream cone. Oh, you're going to get an ice cream cone. No, I'm just going to get an ice cream cone. What part of that is weird? And there's some people that they just live in that world. And the reason I say that is they read this relationship between David and, and uh, Jonathan, and they take it and they go really radically weird places with it. 
But if you've ever been a person who just loves the Lord, what you find is the Lord brings people in your life that are just kindred. They just love God with you. And God has this way of bringing those people in your lives at very integral moments. But by the way, they're not recognized by some great amount of talents or some great amount of abilities or some form of social prowess. The one thing that you kind of go, you know what? That person just loves God. Now understand what a covenant is. A promise is that there's something expected of you in the future. But a covenant demands relationship. When God gets into a covenant with man, it isn't because God's simply going to do something in the future. It requires a relationship to see it through. And that's why marriage is a covenant and not just a contract. When God gets into a covenant with Israel, it's a covenant with Israel because what God really wants for every one of you, me included, is a relationship with us. Nothing is more important to God than your relationship with Him. Uh, except mine will actually be tied, but you get the idea. So what happens here is that the son, Saul's son, who by the way was an infinitely better man than his father, though will never take the throne as God promised, he looks at David and he sees himself. He sees himself. He sees a guy with a passion for God with a heart for God's heart. And he looks at him and he says, you know what? We need to be we need to be friends. Now, maybe you're one of those kind of people, you kind of grew up in sort of the Disney umbrella, and you realize best friends are a cool thing. Now, somewhere down the line, you hit you know, those awkward ages where that's when you need a best friend the most, when things start to appear like zits, and your voice starts to change, and things get weird, and hormones change, and then you're like, let's be besties, you know, BFFs. You know, at least what it should say is like best best friends, at least through our teens, right? You know, and and the idea is we just want somebody that we can kind of link with and, and go through life together with and kind of go out. And as Christians, we link with certain people and then it's like, hey man, let's we've been there together. We've walked through those weird times, and in walking through those weird times, you know, we can look back and say, Look at how God carried us. But I gotta tell you, it's the guys that fight beside you when your life is on the line. That will be in a relationship like no other relationship you'll have on earth. If speaking with guys that serve in the military in Israel, and you talk to them about the kind of relationship they have with their other soldiers, guys that have fought that knew and often lost close friends that were next to them in their own platoon, when you see the relationship, when you face death with another individual, that relationship will be different than any other relationship you'll have on earth. And somewhere down the line in all of this, David and Jonathan now have made this pact. We are going to be friends no matter what. And I understand why, wouldn't you? Because clearly Saul's on his way out. He's actually been handed his P45 by God, but he has no interest in leaving the office. So he's got the crown that's not his now, wearing the robe that's not his, and sitting on a throne that's not, not rightly his to sit on. And yet in all of that, God is still being patient, and he still has the guy that's to replace him, and that's David, but he's only, he's only 15 years old at best. And Saul's son looks at him and goes, look, I know my dad's not going to be king forever, and I know that I'm not going to be the next king, and I know that God's kind of replacing you, and we're going to see that, by the way, ultimately, by 1 Samuel 24, when Jonathan says, now indeed I know that you will surely be king, and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Jonathan says, I know this. I know you're really the guy. 
Can we make sure that we're still friends? Because traditionally, when a guy took over the throne from another family, he killed the rest of their family so that no one could rise up and revolt. And you could see Jonathan going, we can still be friends, right? Well, we read then in verse 5 how God starts to elevate him. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. Saul sent him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of the people and also in the sight of the servants. As God starts to bring him to this place, one thing we're going to see at least three different times is how David behaves wisely. And can I say, when you walk with the Lord, wisdom will actually befriend itself to you as well. Verse 6, it says, Now what happened is they were coming home when David had was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine. That's Goliath. That's our last chapter. That the women had come out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing. And they, to meet King Saul at their tambourines and joy in the musical instruments. And the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, already you kind of recognize there's going to be some problems with a song like that. Especially when Saul already knows he's got the boots and somebody's better than him. And again, I remind you, he's looking for somebody after God's own heart that's better than he is. And the women start singing this song. Hey, Saul's slain his thousands. That's good. But David is tens of thousands. And this song, by the way, will actually climb the charts. And it will actually become a very big song in the Philistine territory. Because by 1 Samuel 21, verse 11, the servants of Ahish the king say, Isn't this the guy they said David is slain his tens of thousands? Remember that song? By 1 Samuel 29, verses 3 through 5, the princes of the Philistines, they look and they go, Hey, 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 isn't this that guy they wrote that song about? Saul slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. So clearly this becomes a reputation of a song. But now Saul is the one hearing it. And the girls are coming out to perform for the king. And you would imagine kings don't like songs that actually make somebody else more of a hero than yourself. Verse 8 says, Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed only thousands. It's amazing once you start comparing how thousands seem like very little. Now what more can you have with the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. Now we have a situation of suspicion, and what a wild place this is. In 1 Samuel 18, Saul now is starting to recognize his replacement. And as he's recognizing his replacement, he realizes that David now has the affection and the respect of every person now except for Saul. And he looks, and he says, and hear me on this, Saul thinks he has a lot to lose, but here's the crazy part. It's not his to lose in the first place. It's already been removed from him. So imagine, if you will, I'm going to use just the example here of Hugo. Let's imagine if Hugo and Deborah decide they want to buy a big screen plasma television. And they, you know, they sell a few things. Uh, Hugo is very serious. You can tell he sells a base. And in all of that, they get this giant flat screen TV that basically fills a wall in their house, which still doesn't make it very large, but just the same. And then somewhere down the line, they can no longer they can no longer actually afford to make those easy payments. And then come the repo men and they take his flat screen. Now, he knows as the sort of recall notice is there that at any moment those guys are on their way to take that flat screen from him. He knows it's gone. 
But at that moment, imagine if someone else says, I'm going to take your, your television. He's like, oh, what can that guy have? But the television isn't even his anymore to take. The kingdom from which Saul is sitting at this moment is a kingdom he doesn't actually run. He's busy running from God, and there's no kingdom there. And the reason I say this, please hear me in this. If you really think that you're in control of your life, well, then just commit to me that you'll never get sick for the rest of it. If you really think you're in control of your life, commit to me that you'll catch every bus, that nothing will ever be canceled that you want to step on, that every person will be kind to you if you really have that much control. Here's the danger. If I really, really wanted you dead, one of the easiest ways to do that would be to convince you that you're not in danger when you are and give you such a false sense of security that you would put yourself in peril's way naively and boldly and throw yourself right before the proverbial bus. And man, I can tell you, I didn't have a remote concept of Jesus until I was 19. And for 19 years, I did a really good job of thinking I was running my life. And in running my life, I ran over a lot of other people to get there. And I recognize now as I look at it how little control I actually had over my life that I thought I had total control over. Hey, you know what? We can play that game, and again, we can look on the outside, and we can play the game well on the outside, but it just doesn't make it real. The same way that when you go to Disneyland, and I hate to pop that bubble, but when it says the Magic Kingdom, well, it is as long as you agree that the facades that are on the front are actually real. But in the end of it all, it really really doesn't live at that house. And as long as we see the outside and we pretend we're going to be good with it, and the reason I say that is we can do that too. And you can pretend you're brilliant and you can pretend you're, and you know, in comparison to other people you might be. You might be smart and you might be stronger than the average person. But in the end of it all, the facade you've painted for which people, as long as they agree with it, it's going to be okay. Sooner or later, someone's going to call your bluff and you realize you just don't have the change to pay. Then there becomes the problem. Now understand, at that moment, what do you do? I was a lifeguard for a period of time, and I watched guys, and we've learned one of the most dangerous things you can do when a guy starts drowning in California, or anywhere for that matter, is jump in to try to save them when they're convinced they don't need saving. Because at that point, what they'll do is they'll drag you down and try to use you as their flotation device. Now, that's not so cool. We were not created to be someone else's flotation device. And what you have to do is you have to wait for that moment where they're willing to say, will you let me rescue you? Stop fighting me. I'm on your side. And what you find at those moments is the only guys that go down after that are the people so proud that they're not willing to let other people see them struggle. But that's where dead people come. And I just want to warn you, there's going to be a time where you're going to face things. And I know some of our cultures, we really have to put on that face because we'll shame those that, that gave birth to us. We'll shame those that, that are part of our family or our culture or our, our posse. The moment that we actually show that we actually are as human as we really know we are, if we're going to be honest. And at that moment, are you willing to let the one that really wants to rescue you, rescue you? Or will you proudly die now, I don't know if any of you have heard the story about the Titanic. We're not talking about, Jack, don't let go and all that. We're talking about the real story where there was a whole group of people, like, for instance, the, the, the string quartet, who actually decided they were going to play as the, as the ship sunk. 
Now, I don't know about you. Now, if you're a violinist, I understand. But if you're playing like the double bass, that floats. And there's no part of me that thinks, you know, I just would rather play, finish the song as I die than I could actually ride this thing to shore. Or at least get in it long enough to try to wait for something else. And the reason I say that is somewhere down the line we get to this place where we're so busy trying to save face that we actually lose the whole lot. You know what? Sooner or later you're going to have to break your grip. But the sooner you do it, the less casualties there are. I just wish that we could be strong enough to be honest with our weakness. Saul here looks and he sees this guy that is his replacement. And he's not willing to step off the throne he thinks is his for the person who really deserves to be there. And to be honest, it's the complete tragedy. And he looks and he says, what more can this kid have? And already he's roughly 15. What more could he have but the kingdom? You know, it's interesting I remind you, this is 11, between 1,000 and 1,100 B.C., and this is exactly the same standard we're going to see 1,000 years later when Jesus walks the planet. And the idea is quite simple. There's somebody that actually deserves this, this seat, and I am not interested in giving it to him, and the only thing left to do is to kill him. You know, it's interesting. When God actually, or I mind you, handed Samuel his P45, he said in 1 Samuel 15, 28, that the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today. So why is he saying, what more can this guy have with the kingdom? Saul, it's not yours to give or keep. In John chapter 11, when Jesus is actually in the better parts of his years, where he's actually a little bit more popular, that's the earlier year and a half of the three, the religious leaders see him as a great threat. Now, I don't know about you, but the idea that those that are supposed to be representing God are actually troubled by Jesus, God walking in the flesh, that doesn't reconcile well in my head. So if you think you have a problem with organized religion, and I'm not just talking about in mass, but I'm talking about the sort of hypocrisy and the sort of money-hungry or greed-hungry people filled with avarice and, and glutted with self-importance, well, I'd like to let you know Jesus had the same problem with them that you do. And the people, when they look and they see Jesus, and by the way, a friend to sinners in reaching out, they see this in John 11, 46, I'm sorry, 48. They say, if we leave this guy alone, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What a strange thought. Israel actually, by, by the way, by 7 AD, Caponius, who took, by the way, will later be taken over by Pontius Pilate, he actually removed the right of capital punishment. They didn't have the right of self-governing from 7 AD onward. And the reason I say that is, for them to take away their place in their nation, Israel was occupying a space at the Romans' courtesy. It wasn't like they had that space and they said, we're bad, don't mess with us. They were under Rome's thumb. And yet, still in all of that, they're like, if we actually let this guy go on, he's going to take over everything. Now listen to this. The heart of it is this. If we really let him have what he wants, he's going to take over everything. So how do you feel? Does that threaten you? It used to threaten me. You know, I have areas of my life I didn't want God near. You know, it's sort of like, don't go near the West Wing. You know, that kind of thing. In the end of it all, I started to realize that God never removes, he replaces. And he's never a God of nuts. He's a God of instead of. In everything that I handed him, even the weakest, nastiest things he was willing to take, and even the things that I thought were platinum, 
he could take and give me better, and he always has. And like, if I really let him go and have what he wants to do with my life, he's going to take this thing over completely. And to that I say, have at it. Replace every bit of this with something better. Verse 10. 1 Samuel 18, verse 10. Now it happened on the next day that a distressing spirit from God came upon Paul and from Saul, and he prophesied inside the house. Now, understand something here. Trifling over whether this is a physical entity, one thing we can be sure of is this guy is miserable. And God does not want you super happy and stoked when you're running from him because you weren't created for anything but a relationship with him. Saul now... He realizes he's in bad shape, and he's been hiring this musician, happens to be the David, his replacement. And he, David came and he played music with his hand, he was a harpist. And at that time, there was a spear in Saul's hand, and Saul cast his spear at him, and he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence, and then my favorite word in this, twice. Now, I don't know about you, but think that through. I mean, the guy chucks his spear at you when you get away from it. And then he's like, huh, just kidding. Come back here and play me another song. And then he throws another spear at you. How many times do you come back? And we read why in verse 12. The strangest reason, because Saul was afraid of David. You know, sometimes, well, and I've often found, bullies are actually the most feared people, but they're also the most afraid people. They live in a fear and they have to put other people under them to sort of self-squelch the very fear that they live in coward to Saul's afraid. See, what Saul's afraid of and hearing of this is reality. Think it. David is a replacement, and it's staring us in the face. And it's staring David, I'm sorry, it's staring Saul in the face, too. What he realizes is the guy that's better than him is a 15-year-old kid playing a harp in front of him at a moment because the presence of the Lord is with David, and Saul is in a miserable state. Now look at again. Convince me you're awesome. Convince me you're strong. Convince me you've got it all together. And you probably could. You could rehearse it and you could give it all to me and I could probably go, wow, your life sounds great. But you're the one who has to stare in the mirror and see you. I don't see you when I look in the mirror. And you're the one who has to put that head of yours on the pillow tonight and then try to sort through and compartmentalize the day and the you that you play and the you that's really laying on that pillow. And somewhere in all of that, when it gets quiet enough, and if you're fearful to hear the truth at a moment like that, sounds like you're a lot like Saul. Saul does not want to admit he's just not the man. So, Saul was afraid of David, and we read, because the Lord was with him. The Lord was with David. But it departed from Saul. And that's how you, there is nobody in the planet more miserable than somebody that's walked with the Lord. And then somewhere down the line decided they want to try something else. It just doesn't make sense. It's like, pardon me, if you will, for this very shoddy metaphor, but it's like going first and, and living in some place like Sicily, where, you know, they give you the food by a shovelful, and you're just, you're at that place where it's like, you know, I'm sure that if I eat this meal, I'm going to be hungry again in about three or four years, you know, and you're like, you're sweating pasta, and you know, you're like that point where you have to buy elastic trousers, and then somewhere down the line, you move to like France, and they give you four peas, and they like spray something on the side of it to make it look like they graffitied your plate. And then you're like, yeah, here you go. You know, and you're like, hmm. You're just not going to find the same kind of satisfaction on that plate that you did back when things were in abundance. Well, that's really where Saul is. There's only one infinite well. 
Therefore, verse 13, Saul removed him from his presence and he made him captain over a thousand. Wait a minute, Saul's promoting David? We see why. And he went on and came out among the people and David behaved wisely. Sound familiar? In all his ways, and the Lord was with him. And therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. No, he was afraid of him because the Lord was with him. He was afraid of him because of the choices he was making. And by the way, can I say this? No matter how you portray yourself, no matter how you put it all together in front of me, or to the other person next to you, the choices you make sooner or later will either confirm you or betray you. There was a, there was a couple back in the States. He was a principal. He was a headmaster of an elementary school. His wife was a brilliant doctor, and, but she had gotten very ill. She had gotten a brain tumor. And as she had gotten a brain tumor, she became non-ambulatory, which is often common with that type of problem. And, and she was bedridden, and as she was bedridden, he said he was going out to the store, and he left and didn't come back for three months. In between that time, he met a girl. Actually, he had met a girl before that point, and he went to be with her. She apparently was the store he was talking about. And he was gone for three months. He had come back, and at that point, she owned him. It was like one of these really sick, fatal attraction kind of relationships. And ultimately, she would call him and manipulate him, and he would just be gone at the drop of a dime just because she just kind of had that domination over him. And, and all of that, he would, you know, he'd act real kind to his wife to come back, and of course, and she was in no condition to do anything but continue, you know, to allow him to serve her. Uh, in any way he could, and then he would be gone again. And then ultimately, she had gotten better by God's grace. God had healed her from this tremendous. I mean, we're talking about something the size of a grapefruit growing in her head, and God had healed her completely. It was one of those situations where, like many doctors, scratch their heads, and they have a word for miracle because they don't like to use that word. They use the word anomaly. What anomaly is? It's a miracle that we won't call a miracle because then we have to give God credit. I get it. So ultimately, she goes, and the two of them come into my office because they need counseling, as you might imagine. And he looks at me, and he says with a straight face, I love my wife more than anything. And you bet he felt it when he said it, with tears in his eyes. Now, what do you say to them? You're like, no, you don't. You love yourself more than anything. He went for my throat. The point was simple. The choices he was making clearly betrayed the statement he was making. And your choices will really show where your heart is. That's where we behave wisely or not. And David, because his heart really does belong to God, his choices are going to follow suit. Verse 16. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went in, he went out and came in before them. It's a quite simple thing. It is really hard to love someone who's not there. And what David really was that Saul wasn't, was there. You see, what Saul had done, because Saul had this guilty consciousness, or at least living one way he was in denial, he had become quite aloof to the people he was supposed to lead. It happens, by the way, you're aware of that. You start doing something and you realize, man, your life's a bit janky right now, and you know you need to get some things right, and the last place you want to be is with people that are actually full of joy, because it really does shatter the facade of the plan. And, and that's kind of where Saul is, but David, on the other hand, he's left in the high. Not at least at this point in his life. David's the one that cried mercy. He's like, Saul's like, go and fight those people. He goes and fights. He's still in submission to the guy he's supposed to replace. Because he knows he's giving God room to do it his way. He's not like, well, God, if I'm supposed to be king, and this guy isn't, so I kill him. We don't read any of that. David actually has enough faith in God to give God the space 
it is necessary to get it done. So, David behaves wisely. He walks among the people. He doesn't walk over them. He walks among them. That's one thing we learned about Jesus. Jesus didn't pastor over people. He shepherded among his sheep. But if you've ever watched a shepherd in the Middle East, they don't stand on a tower and command their sheep to move places. They walk with them. They know them by name. Fluffy and Jumpy and whatever it is. Sean. Verse 17. When you want to talk about a guy that actually is going to make decisions where his heart belongs to God, I usually ask, where are you at with the girls? David clearly has not done it with the glory, and David clearly hasn't done it with the gold. And now what about the girls? Verse 17, Saul said to David, here's my, my older daughter, Merab. Merab, by the way, means increase or gets more. And I will give her to you as a wife, and only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against them, but let the hand of the Philistines be against them. So David said to Saul, look at his response, who am I? And what is my life or my father's life in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? And I understand, David has an opportunity to really grab the limelight, but he doesn't. This is part of the wisdom that David is eschewing. And yet, oddly enough, though it appears as if Saul is honoring him, what he's really doing is setting him up, isn't he? But you know, the scripture says, there is no curse that will light upon you properly without a purpose. If you stand with God, and I tell you, we've had situation after situation where people have come and tried to curse us. Well, that's always a little bit fun. Sometimes they're quite colorful. Sometimes it's more covert. Matter of fact, the guy that's actually running our sound, one of our chief soundmen back in the States, first came in, slid this sort of cryptic note underneath our door, and it was a curse. We didn't know what it was. It just kind of looked like something from, I don't know, like the Book of Secrets, or we thought maybe there was treasure hidden by the Masons somewhere. But ultimately, you know, it, it took four or five years later, and the guy came in, and because we'd been out on the streets, and this guy was in need, and we kind of reached out to him, and sooner or later, he surrendered to Christ. And then sooner or later, he's like, hey, by the way, did you get this weird note in the middle of your third service? I'm like, oh, yeah. He's like, yeah, that was me. I was trying to curse you. I'm like, how did that work out for you? He's like, no, I'm at your church. Now he's running sound. His name's Keanu. What an amazing, cool story. There was a gal who had just accepted. And please understand, when I say this, this isn't a sale. It isn't like, hey, by the way, what you really need to do is bite into this book. I will explain the idea of accepting Christ because it is a gift that you can accept. And I don't work on commission because the issue is, I'm just another person that's been adopted by the King of Kings. But understand there was a girl, and she'd given her life to Christ, and she called me. She was brand new in Jesus. And she called me, and she's like, I think my next-door neighbor broke into my house, and I looked under my doormat, and there was a pair of my underwear with pepper in them. I think it's a curse. Is it dangerous? And I said, if you put them on, they probably might be. But other than that, you're going to be okay now. I have two daughters. One looks like her mother, praise God. The other, adopted from China, doesn't look like me at all. Actually, sometimes acts more like me, and that's concerning too. And I think the loudest is my older daughter. But I am in love with both of them. And neither one of them, well, I should say it this way, they both are my favorite. And even though one is through adoption and one is biological, they're both just as much my daughter as the other. Nothing about them is different. And I look at them and I love them the same. 
to care for them the same. And the reason I say that is, is that in a situation like what we're looking at here, this is a big deal. God's infinite love for you, His responsibility, the moment you say yes to Him, He adopts you and makes you His own. And a dad takes care of his children, or really, right dad. He provides for his kids. He protects his kids. He shows great pleasure in them. And he challenges them to live a life worthy of the gospel. And if my children live in constant fear because they think somehow I keep putting them in places of great danger, what kind of dad am I? And then I tell you that there's a God out there that wants to adopt you and is tired of you walking around as a spiritual orphan. And what he really wants is to cover you in love. And he wants to, to lavish you with just great things to make your life amazing. It's like your life was black and white like the Wizard of Oz. And now you've opened it and everything's that technicolor. That's what God really wants for your life. And yet, we could say, no, nah, I kind of like this because I feel I have more control over this black and white world. And it's like, you have no idea what you're missing. Saul in this situation here, David looks and he goes, man, who am I that you want to make me your son-in-law? Now understand, when the call went out and said, anyone that fights Goliath, one of the things that was offered, you give them a chunk of cash, they'll take away their taxes. That's a bad one. Can you imagine that here? And you can have one of my daughters. So, I mean, it was part of the deal, so you imagine Saul's following through, but Saul looks and he's saying, this is actually a setup. Saul's actually trying to get David killed from it, but there's no way he's going to get away with it because David belongs to the Lord. So what happens in verse 19? At the time when Merav, Saul's daughter should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel Machalite as a wife. You think that Saul's trying to break his heart here? Verse 20. Now, Michal, Saul has two daughters. Now, Saul's moving to number two. Now, Michal, Saul's daughter loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Now, ladies, put yourself in Michal's shoes. What if you were reading these verses or hearing your dad say this of you? He said, Saul said, I'll give her to him that she may be a snare to him. What kind of girl is this? He's like, yeah, give her that one. That'll kill him. And that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, okay, next time you'll really be my son-in-law. So Saul commanded his servants, communicate with David secretly and say, look, the king has delighted you and all of his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words concerning in the hearing of David. And David said, is it? See to you a light thing to be the king's son-in-law? And poor and lightly esteemed, not lightly esteemed, the one anointed king considers himself so. And the servants of Saul said to him, In this manner David spoke. Saul then said, Well, thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry but a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. What a weird dowry. Ladies, would you... Imagine it's like, honey, this is what I did to actually close the deal on our wedding. A hundred foreskins to take vengeance on the king's enemies, but Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Now when the servants of 
told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son of Ramah. The days hadn't expired. He had a certain period of time he had to pay a dowry for the first gal that had already been handed off. And David arose and he went, he and his men killed 200 men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins and he laid them in full count before the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him Michal, her daughter, his daughter, as a wife. Now two quick things and we're almost done because we only have our last few verses here to close this up. This is really funky. Let's just be honest. Now, we're definitely not in a culture like this. Now, it's important to recognize, and some of you, you maybe you're in a culture, if you've been more of a sort of a more of a tradition to your culture, you're a little bit more uh, closer attached to where you may have come from, your nation of origin. Well, then you kind of know some places there. By the way, Western world really works, by the way, in a very different way than the Eastern world does. We're well aware of that. In the Western world, by the way, it's very individual-focused. And the Eastern world is very community-focused. And as a result of that, the Western world is to be driven by guilt, and the Eastern world is driven by honor. Shame is the theme. And here, we just never want to do something that would really fail in the face of everyone. But there you'd be shamed. It's interesting, in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus came to pay for both our guilt and shame. See, every culture, he still wants to be the Savior. And some of you are aware of the fact that a dowry is the idea that you really mean it. Today we have this in the Western culture. I was told that if you're really going to get a decent engagement ring, it should be at least two months of your salary. Now, that's still really sad because I wasn't making a great deal of money back then. But the idea of it was is that if you didn't keep your end of the bargain, she could cash in the ring and at least she could get something that said this was important enough to do something about it. That's what we have in the Western world, that's it. Because we don't have covenants here. Because it's all about the individual. So if you rip someone off and get away with it, good for you is that concept. It's not scriptural. Because the idea is, well, look at how far you've gotten. But please understand, in the Middle Eastern culture 3,000 years ago, and 2,000 years ago, in the days of Jesus, there were three things you could do as dowry. One is you can offer up a period of service. The greatest, the greatest length of service would be three and a half years. Now, originally it had been seven, you were familiar, some of you, with the story of Jacob and Rachel, Rachel. But by the time of Jesus, it had turned to a three and a half year contract. If you could work for three and a half years, you could pay a dowry. The second is, if you could pay a debt that they owe, if the family was in great debt, you could redeem them. We get that from the book of Ruth. They call them the Gael, or the kinsman redeemer. And the third case, what you could do is if you could actually restore honor back to the family. In order to do that, often what you have to do is completely consume their property and give it a new name. And then adopt every person into your family so that now they carry your surname, and with that, carry your elder. Those were the three options. Any one of those three things were acceptable. And let me ask you, how many of those things did Jesus do for his bride? We read that his ministry was roughly three and a half years. We read that Jesus paid the price that we rightly owed. He became our substantiation, or as the word says, illustrious in the Greek, or ransom payment, or propitiation. And that is our justification, our righteousness. And it restored our honor because he was in crisis in the creation. See, what Jesus did is he didn't say, I'll take any one of these. He 
said, I'll show you how important you are. I'll do everything that is required. David gives us a hint of that here. What's expected are 100, he brings in 200 because David wants to let you know he's serious. And this will be David's his mindset. Even when he's to build the temple, or at least though he won't get the chance, he will actually at least get the, the property. It's the threshing floor of Amnon, and the guy says, well, why don't, you, why don't you just give it to you, you're the king? And David says, I will not give to God that which costs me nothing. Now look, if you have a problem with what you've seen as Christianity, and what you've seen is a lot of people giving God nothing, and calling it a tremendous sacrifice, I want you to recognize, God thinks that's nonsense too. And we can make ourselves martyrs over a paper but David was not that kind of guy. He did it with all of his heart. And ladies, if you're single, might I suggest, take a man like this, who is going after God with everything. Not just cool to made it into the get out of hell free club card. So when he says, Saul knew, Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David. And then Michal, by the way, whose name is, who is like God? Saul's daughter loved him. Saul and him stole more for him. Everything David is doing is right. Because everything that David is doing is right, it is making this worse for Saul. And I want to challenge you today. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, it's his job to convince you, not mine. But I invite you to stick around and sniff around. But when you start seeing things that are right, you're going to have to reconcile them. And it may make you fearful. It may make you very fearful because you realize, wow, if this God's really real, I need to deal with him. It tells us Saul was more afraid of David and he became David's enemy continually. When you were refusing to actually let God thump you, all you're left with at that point is declaring war against him. But I want to warn you, God is the undefeated heavyweight champion of the universe and you are no threat to him. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war, and so it was, whenever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. And this is how we end it. We end it with this. David becomes public enemy number one to the Philistines, and he becomes public friend number one to Israel. And he also becomes, well, a public declaration of love from God himself. And can you imagine if God were to say tonight, you know, I'm just looking for somebody who wants my heart. They may not be perfect in their actions. They may have their faults and their warts and their humanities about them. Of course they are. And what they really want though is me. Now look at it. What you think God wants is your stuff. Who do you think gave it to you? That's silly. In the end of it all, God made really clear in the fifth book of Scripture what he really wanted when he said this. Here, O Israel, I'm completely one. The Lord God is one. He says, can I just have your love? Your heart, your mind, your soul, I could just have your love. None of this would be of an argument. Like, well, could you imagine? Some guy chasing after you, or a gentleman, some gal really wants to make you, let you know they really are interested in you. And you're like, well, what do they want? My time? How insulting would that be? And I can tell you this you know when a guy is serious, when he actually does, he takes out the one thing he wouldn't dare take out otherwise, his wallet. And he actually takes her out to dinner somewhere and does something, and he spends some time, and he starts planning. And the moment that her, her name becomes a common phrase in his mouth, and everything gets tied to it, you kind of know the guy's a bit smitten, right? 
You know, and it's like, hey, I just spoke with somebody giving over a train. Oh, that reminds me. So they can always tie it back to this girl. And you kind of go, okay, clearly something's going on. And I watch somebody infected with that kind of love. And I want you to realize, that's your God is with you. It tells us that his thoughts for you outnumber the sand on the shore. Now, they used to live by the shore. Little sand, there's a lot of those little grains around. And they're completely beyond counting. It tells us that he takes delight in you and rejoices over you with singing. Is that the God you know? Because that's the God of Scripture. So as we go to prayer now, I just want to ask you something. As we go now and take this to prayer, where are you really at with this God? Now, here's the cool thing. I won't lie to you. We're going to be honest. If you're going to hand God your life, you're going to hand God your life. Not God is not here then to be enlisted as your bellboy. He's not here so that you can just ring the bell and say, as long as I say in Jesus' name, the Bentley's on its way. Well, that doesn't make him Lord. And you're trying to actually drag the lifeguard farther out to shore, away from shore. And what he wants to do is, is rescue you and then replace every bit of that empty life with a vibrant one. Where are you at with that, God? You want to find him? I was going to say good luck, but I don't believe in that. But I think, if you want to, I know this. Sooner or later, you're going to agree. So as we go to prayer, just want to ask God to speak to us. He confirmed the things that have been spoken to him. Would you pray with me? God, I recognize that there are so many more people who would want to say yes to you if all they really got out of it was you giving them things. It's kind of like being adopted by Santa. And if what they really could do is get a hotline to you and you give them stuff, And I recognize they could say, he just needs to accept me for who I am. But for to do that, we are not accepting you for who you are. You deserve to be Lord. So tonight as we pray, I just pray, Lord, that the very things that you've spoken tonight, you would confirm in our heart. You would show us the reality that you really, really need us. And that you really want our love that we would be people after your heart. And in that, God, you would do something amazing. You would give us the life you promised us, abundant, over and abundant. And that those who are starving around us would recognize where the endless table is. And those that are parched would realize where the fountain is. And you would make us that. And that we would shine in such a way people would say, wow, I want that. And we would be wise enough not to be the destination, but rather the bus. You see, then what you need is Jesus. So Jesus, I want to thank you for dying on the cross for all of our sin and guilt and shame. I want to thank you for paying for every crime of humanity in our hearts and minds. And when we took them to the cross, they were painful. Just like Scripture promised, on the third day after being buried, you rose again. And as you came from that cave, you showed us there's a whole new life to receive. 
and that whole new life to receive is one that is beyond border and wilder than our wildest imagination, no greater adventure. And I just pray tonight by the power of your spirit, tonight when we lay our heads on our pillows, you would confirm this so deeply that we'd realize fighting you is not only foolish, it's fatal. And that when we're fighting your love, and tonight that we would say, yes, Jesus, if this is for real, that I want you. So, I just give you permission to do what I know you want to do. Assume the righteous throne of my life and make it beautiful. Jesus, in your name.